Good morning, everyone. My name is Christopher Preble. I'm the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Um, it is uh, my distinct privilege and honor to, uh, to welcome you. We've uh, been, been working on this event uh, for a little while. We were, we were uh, derailed by some bad weather last month, but uh, thanks to all of you for being here. I also, as always, want to shout out to, um, to our conference staff here at Cato who do a terrific job organizing our events. Uh, if you haven't done so already, please do turn off your, uh, your cell phones. Um, the uh, first few generations of American leaders, or at least I should say, put your cell phones on silent. No one actually turns off their cell phones anymore. Put them on silent. Uh, the first few generations of American leaders made a sharp distinction between advancing the legitimate interests of the republic and taking on foreign causes that purported to overthrow tyrannical rule and establish democratic systems based on respect for fundamental rights. Within the last half century, however, a number of foreign insurgent groups have been able to manipulate U.S. policymakers and opinion leaders into supporting their causes. Sometimes those efforts have even entangled the U.S. military in bloody, unnecessary, and morally dubious wars in places like Kosovo, Iraq, Libya, and Syria. In gullible superpower, here it is. If you don't have it, you should get one. There are copies outside for purchase. Uh, gullible superpower, U.S. support for bogus foreign democratic movements, Ted Galen Carpenter examines the most prominent cases in which well-meaning Americans have ended up supporting misguided policies. He underscores the need for future U.S. leaders to adopt a policy of skepticism and restraint toward foreign movements that purport to embrace democracy. Uh, before he tells you more about the book, let me tell you a bit about Ted, though, here at Cato, he should really need no introduction because none of us would be here if it wasn't for Ted, and I don't mean just here to listen to it, talk his book. He created the Defense and Foreign Policy Studies program as it exists today here at Cato. He served as Cato's Director of Foreign Policy Studies from 1986 to 1995 and as Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies from 1995 to 2011. He is the author of 12 books. We have to update this so often that we can't even keep up. He is the author of 12 books and the editor of 10 other books on international affairs, and they include Perilous Partners, The Benefits and Pitfalls of America's Alliances with Authoritarian Regimes, The Fire Next Door, Mexico's Drug Violence, and The Danger to America, and Beyond NATO, Staying Out of Europe's Wars. Ted is contributing editor to both the National Interest and American Conservative, and he is the author of more than 800 articles in policy studies, including in all of the major publications, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, and the National Interest, et cetera, et cetera. He received his PhD in U.S. diplomatic history, hooray, from the University of Texas. Ted, take it away. Chris, thank you very much for that uh, kind introduction. And it's a pleasure to be back here at, uh, at Cato. The uh, publication of Gullible Superpower uh, stresses a very important theme, and that is that the United States, at least officially, has always stood for promoting freedom. That was certainly true of the founding generation and the generations that immediately followed. But there was an important distinction, and it was one that John Quincy Adams, who is Secretary of State for James Monroe, made, and that was that America was the well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all, but she is the champion and vindicator only of her own. And he did not make that distinction arbitrarily. There was a very important reason for it, and he stresses that. She well knows that by once enlisting under other banners than her own, were they even the banners of foreign independence, she would involve herself beyond the power of extrication in all the wars of interest and intrigue, of individual avarice, envy and ambition, which assume the colors and usurp the standard of freedom. And that was a key point, and I think it is a distinction that has uh, been forgotten by subsequent generations of American policymakers. 
we saw signs of a more active involvement and almost imposition at times of the values of freedom and democracy. We saw it first with Woodrow Wilson and his 14 points, uh, which not only led to the League of Nations, but I mean it's stressing the importance of democratic values. Wilson himself once uh, stated that he was going to teach the people of Latin America to, quote, elect good men. So this is a much more activist policy. This is not just the shining city on a hill. America as an example to be emulated when other people wanted to, to emulate that system. This is active promotion, if not insistence. The area that I cover the most, though, is the period from the 1980s to the present. And there was a tremendous boost in terms of activist US policy promoting so-called democratic movements. And this occurred in the 1980s with the advent of the so-called Reagan Doctrine. And this began with support for anti-communist movements that sought to overthrow client regimes of the Soviet Union, left-wing radical regimes that Moscow was backing. The uh, most comprehensive formulation of the Reagan doctrine and its reasoning came from Secretary of State George Shultz in a speech to the Commonwealth Club of San Francisco in February 1985. Schultz pointed to um, insurgencies in various parts of the world against regimes allied with or heavily dependent upon the Soviet Union. And Schultz did not just say, well, these are anti-communist movements or these are anti-Soviet movements. They certainly were that, and they were proliferating in a good many parts of the world, particularly the third world, strongly encouraged and even funded in many cases by the United States. But he articulated a different rationale for that than just um, an effort to uh, complicate things for the Soviet Union. He said these movements were fighting for, quote, independence, freedom and human rights. So that's far more than just motivated by anti-Soviet sentiment or anti-communist sentiment. And there was an emotional component to the Reagan administration's policy and especially the Reagan doctrine. Schultz said, how can we as a country say to a young Afghan Nicaraguan or Cambodian, learn to live with oppression. Only those of us who have already had freedom deserve to pass it on to our children. And then he added, the forces of democracy around the world merit our standing with them. To abandon them would be a shameful betrayal, a betrayal not only of brave men and women, but of our highest ideals. So this puts a very big moral component to US foreign policy. Now one could argue with considerable evidence that neither Schultz nor other US officials really believed that, that this was all hypocrisy, to put a gloss on a policy that had realpolitik, geostrategic, elements to it. And I think there may be some truth to that. But there are other signs that Schultz and other Reagan administration officials and officials since then actually bought into much of this, that they were supporting the forces of democracy. They were supporting genuine freedom fighters. You find this even in things such as 
entries into President Reagan's private diary where he is hailing many of these people as freedom fighters. So that suggests a certain amount of sincerity. Bill Casey, the director of the CIA, in his will left more than $100,000 to support so-called freedom fighter movements around the world. Again, this suggests something more than just pure cynicism, that at some level, many of these people really did believe their own rhetoric. But there are some rather dangerous miscalculations at the root of the Reagan doctrine. Most of the movements the US was supporting were certainly anti-Soviet. They were certainly anti-communist. They chafed against Soviet imperialism, and for good reason. But that didn't mean that they were supporting freedom and democracy, as those terms are normally understood. But officials applied uh, the term freedom fighter about as loosely as you possibly can, even applied it to the Afghan mujahideen. Yet the, mujah the word mujahideen translates as holy warriors, not freedom fighters. And that is a very different connotation. The bulk of the book looks at uh, some 10 case studies of US support for so-called democratic movements. Three of the chapters deal with events during the Cold War. Support for the Nicaraguan Contras, people that President Reagan described as, quote, the moral equal of America's founders. That was a bit of an exaggeration. That's not to say there were not pro-democratic elements in the insurgency that was trying to overthrow the leftist Sandinista government. There were. But there were a lot more who were loyal supporters of the former dictator, Anastasio Somoza, and were, in many cases, high-ranking members of Somoza's infamous National Guard. The Afghan Mujahideen, again, I think you would have to look long and hard to find true pro-democratic elements in the Mujahideen. And indeed, most of them were strongly Islamist. And thanks to the influence of Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, most of the aid, the couple billion dollars in aid that the United States provided, was directed disproportionately to the most extremist Islamist elements within the Mujahideen coalition. U.S. support for UNITA, the Union for the Total Independence of Angola, I describe as the Reagan doctrine's biggest embarrassment. This was one where there was real hero worship of the leader of UNITA, uh, Jonas Savimbi. He was hailed as the George Washington of Angola. He uh, had a major op-ed printed in the, in the Wall Street Journal and was just hailed as a champion, uh, not only of democracy, but uh, capitalist democracy. He was that kind of symbol. The reality is the guy started out as a, a client of communist China. Uh, UNITA's internal operation was utterly authoritarian and uh, centered around his personality. In fact, uh, the internal governance of UNITA resembled more uh, North Korea than any democratic entity. But he was nonetheless hailed as this great freedom fighter, had uh, uh, meetings both with President Reagan and with President George H.W. Bush. And that one was particularly shameful. It followed a big public lecture at the Heritage Foundation. And these events occurred at a time when there was ample evidence of Sabimbi's corruption and brutality, murdering political opponents, and so on. So that was particularly inexcusable. Unfortunately, there's no evidence that US officials in the post-Cold War period learned from that experience at all. Um, the United States backed the Kosovo Liberation Army 
in its effort to uh, gain Kosovo secession from Serbia. And uh, Senator Joe Lieberman stated at one point that the Kosovo Liberation Army in the United States stood for the same values and goals, freedom and democracy. Well, later on, uh, an investigation from the European Union uncovered, among other things, that the KLA had murdered prisoners of war and other civilians and sold their organs on an international black market. The last time I looked, that was not considered a major American value. Um, just as the support of Jonas Savimbi was maybe the Reagan doctrine's biggest embarrassment in the Cold War era, the biggest foreign policy embarrassment for the United States in the post-Cold War era was the support for the Iraqi National Congress, the group that, again, was headed by a man that numerous officials in the Bush administration hailed as the George Washington of Iraq. And another official said he was really a superstar. He was the Michael Jordan of Iraq. <laughs> now, Shalabi, Ahmed Shalabi and the, the Iraqi National Congress was the chief instrument selling the United States on the proposition that Saddam Hussein had an array of weapons of mass destruction and reliable delivery systems. This intelligence proved to be totally bogus. And when Chalabi was called on it for utilizing the administration as this outlet for his propaganda and using media outlets like the New York Times as channels for that propaganda, he said, we were heroes in error. The whole point was to get rid of Saddam Hussein, and we did that. So we're not apologizing for anything. Now, um, Douglas Feith, who was the, um, one of the assistant secretaries of defense in the Bush administration, literally wanted the US military command to appoint Shalabi as Iraq's new president. We didn't do that. We actually held parliamentary and presidential elections. And what happened to Mr. Chalabi, the George Washington of Iraq and his party? It garnered 0.5% of the parliamentary vote. One would think perhaps US officials misread the political situation in Iraq, but I, I don't want to jump to conclusions about that. Moving on, we have since uh, supported supposedly democratic movements in Libya to help overthrow Muammar Gaddafi. We can see that that has not turned out particularly well with millions of refugees uh, fleeing that country and Libya having become the uh, geopolitical equivalent of Somalia on the Mediterranean, an arena of total chaos. The US also um, has been involved in trying to support supposedly pro-democratic moderates in Syria. And it's really fascinating because the initial argument at least was get rid of Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian dictator, and democracy will bloom in Syria. Anyone who studied that country would realize the obstacles to that happening. And what we ended up doing was supporting Sunni Arab fundamentalists or radicals against a largely secular coalition backing Assad. Assad is not a good guy. Assad is a thoroughly brutal, corrupt dictator. But the alternative in Syria, by all the evidence, is even worse. And yet the United States ended up covertly and eventually even overtly supporting the anti-Assad forces. Even when we support movements that definitely have democratic elements in them, usually the results do not turn out well. A case in point is Ukraine, where the United States backed 
and frankly meddled to help bring to power uh, a pro-Western government to get rid of the elected pro-Russian government in Kiev. And that again has not turned out well. Not only did that really provoke Vladimir Putin to escalate matters and annex Crimea and support a secessionist rebellion in eastern Ukraine, but some of the people involved in the governing coalition and its supporters are incredibly unsavory. Yes, there are definite Western-style Democrats in the Ukrainian government, but there are also some real ultra-nationalist elements and some outright neo-fascist elements. Our meddling there does not really help matters at all. And the corruption has remained unabated. If you can tell the difference in the degree of corruption, between the Poroshenko government and its predecessors, good luck, because you're gonna need a microscope to tell the difference. One of the things uh, we ought to learn is not just take these movements and their leaders at their word that they support freedom and democracy. I'm reminded of a story attributed to Abraham Lincoln. And on one occasion he was discussing a, a complex issue with his cabinet. Lincoln was taking one position, and the bulk of the cabinet was definitely taking the opposite position. And Lincoln was getting a little frustrated and impatient, and he was saying that the cabinet was being unrealistic. He said, gentlemen, tell me this. If you called a dog's tail a leg, how many legs would a dog have? And several of Lincoln's cabinet members said, well, then a dog would have five legs. He said, no, gentlemen, calling a dog's tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. And saying that a movement is pro-democratic, pro-freedom, does not make that movement pro-democratic or pro-freedom. If the past few decades have taught us anything, that should be the lesson that is well learned by this point. Thank you. Thank you, Ted. Uh, we're now gonna hear from Jacob Heilbrunn. Uh, Jacob's the editor of The National Interest, a foreign policy magazine that was founded by Irving Kristol in 1985. Jacob uh, began his career as an assistant editor at the magazine, where his first issue was the one featuring Francis Fukuyama's essay, The End of History. Uh, he went on to become a senior editor at the New Republic and an editorial writer for the Los Angeles Times. He's written on both foreign and domestic issues for numerous publications, including the New York Times, Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. And Jacob is the author of the book, They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons. Jacob? Well, some of you may not realize that this is my second go-around with Ted. We previously, a few years ago, I commented on one of his books, and I guess I passed muster because <laughs> he solicited me to, uh, to engage him again. And I am actually quite grateful to Ted for writing this book because it, I think it provides an elegant summation of America's attempts to intervene abroad on the cheap, as it were. I would trace the origins of this perhaps back to World War II. Ted talked about William Casey. Casey served in the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, which was run by a fellow named Wild Bill Donovan. And a number of uh, CIA figures emerged from the OSS. And that had quite a buccaneering spirit, going behind enemy lines and engaging in daring do. And I think that that habit of mind endured and flowered during the Cold War. Another promoter of this approach was George F. Kennan, 
who was head of the policy planning staff in the Truman administration after he'd written the X article, a long telegram warning about Soviet expansionism. And Kennan was quite militant about trying to roll back the Iron Curtain in Albania and elsewhere in Eastern Europe. And one of his quotes from the time is that we have to, quote, fight fire with fire. So the idea was to use locals or refugees, send them back into these countries, and try to create mischief. Now, it didn't always work out that well even back then. One of the reasons was in Albania, hundreds were killed because Kim Philby uh, was a friend of James Jesus Angleton, who was at the CIA, and Angleton informed him of, of the plans for Albania. And it turned into a disaster for the British and the, and the Americans. This, none of this has ever um, stopped the American government from trying to go down this road. In the Eisenhower years, I think we were somewhat more cautious. But under Kennedy, it again became alluring. The idea was in Vietnam that you, if you could just assist local forces rather than getting drawn in yourself. And we, we know how that ended in Vietnam. Uh, there was a hiatus then in the 70s. Uh, there was, a, in a way, a, a, there was quite a backlash against the revelations of what America had been up to in the 60s and 70s, especially in Central and Latin America. But for the Reagan administration, which Ted focuses on, I think the idea of, of waging what the Soviet Union had called wars of national liberation became an E-Day fix in Washington as well. And again, I think it was seen as a, a fairly low-cost way to try and combat what the major figures in the Reagan administration and the neoconservatives saw as Soviet inroads in Afghanistan and in Africa. You have to remember the mindset in the late 1970s among conservatives was that the United States was, in fact, not winning but actively losing the Cold War, and that we needed to fight back by any means necessary. There was a split in the Reagan administration itself between the, the more those who wanted to back authoritarian regimes and those who wanted more on the neocon side who wanted to support what they saw as, as democracy movements. Now here, I begin to diverge somewhat from Ted. The title of his book, The Gullible Superpower, is a nifty and catchy title. But the more I stared at it, the less I became convinced that it completely captures the reality. And to his credit, on page two, Ted, as he alluded in his talk today, says, what is less certain is whether American U.S. policymakers sincerely believe the democratic credentials of their foreign clients. Then we cut up to where he has a quote on page 138 from Richard Pearl talking about Ahmed Shalabi. And Pearl was obviously a, also an official in the Reagan Defense Department. Pearl says that Chalabi is effective in bringing groups of Iraqis together. He believes in democracy. I have complete confidence in him, and I hope that the people of Iraq are wise enough to see his benefits. And Ted says that this was astonishing, considering that Chalabi and his behavior came nowhere close to matching that idealized image. Now, I don't believe for a second that Richard Pearl believed any of this hokum. I met Chalabi in, I believe it was 1998 at the New Republic. And my friend Steve Clemens was there too. And we both recall this meeting quite vividly because it was, it, even then, it was quite transparent that Chalabi was a hustler. And I think that Ted, it's, it's very difficult, obviously, you have to be careful about ascribing motives to people. But I am not convinced that this was an exercise in 
in rampant gullibility, nor that American foreign policymakers, uh, when they talk about democracy abroad, are completely gullible. I think they were dealing with what they saw as the instruments at hand. And in a sense, Ted's description of the effort to transform the proto-Jalabi, Jonas Savimbi, into a freedom fighter, I think somewhat suggests, again, that there is an active effort to, to polish and burnish these people, knowing that, they're, knowing that they do have their flaws. I mean, here Ted just lists the organizations that connived at trying to buff Savimbi's image, Heritage Foundation, Freedom House, the American Conservative Union, Young Americans for Freedom, American Security Council, Human Events, National Review, American Spectator, Wall Street Journal. And as he says, it was a sophisticated public relations campaign. So I would like, it would be interesting if Ted would explore a little bit more the, note, the, the line between savvy opportunism and gullibility in American foreign policy. And thinking of that, I would like to bring us down to today, because today I don't think that we have in the Trump administration the attempt really to portray Iran or Venezuela is consisting of freedom fighters. You hear elements of that from Vice President Mike Pence. But I think what you're seeing now is more of a, of a sheer raw exercise in American power. There isn't a huge appetite in America today for going abroad and fighting on behalf of so-called liberation movements. You can see it in the growing discontent with the Afghan war, which Trump clearly wants to exit. And you can see it in the, the lack of footing that any, say, Iranian opposition group has. The, you have the MEK, which Ted talks about. But they haven't really made much, gotten much of a foothold in Washington. So I would wager that these things are cyclical that we are now in the down spiral of going abroad for monsters to destroy. And that those like Ted are actually winning the argument at this point, even if they may not fully realize it. That in fact, there has been a shift in the American public mood. And that maybe America today, at least, isn't all that gullible. Thank you, Jacob. I, uh, I didn't know where you were going to go with your remarks, and I, I was scribbling notes to myself. And you, I guess what your suggestion is, the title shouldn't be gullible superpower, but cynical superpower, or something like that, right? Um, I will open it up to the audience, but I'm going to uh, take my moderator's privilege here and, and maybe ask a question or two. Um, I gave a shout out to Ted because he's a historian, as am I. Uh, the great uh, lament for historians who also try to wade into uh, you know, contemporary public policy is uh, you invoke some past instance that ended up badly, and the response is, this time it's different. Right? We hear this all the time. It's like, yeah, yeah, we know. We got, we got Chalabi wrong. Yeah, yeah, we get that. Yeah, Savimbi was a thug. Yeah, yeah, we understand that. We get all that. Mujahideen, I can't even say it without laughing. Mujahideen does not actually mean freedom fighter. Yes, yes, we understand that. Um, but this time it's different. Uh, and so uh, Jacob alluded to this. I think, I think the more, the, the tougher case, I think it's fair to say, for those of us here at Cato uh, is in Venezuela. We have it appears a, uh, an opposition leader in Juan Guaido who um, is at least sort of, you know, 
It, it has some measure of support. We can't tell how much. Uh, and, and is winning support in, as well from people outside of Venezuela who are sort of, uh, in some cases, even rushing to recognize his government. And so I guess I'll frame this as the question is, how do we know, Ted, can we know, or is the, is the guiding principle that comes out of this and your other books that precisely because we cannot know, we, we must assume the worst nearly all of the time? How would you respond to that? Well, first of all, um, your comment about this time it's different, uh, that's absolutely on the mark. <laughs> but I'm reminded that uh, that is the typical statement of stock market speculators <laughs> who get caught up in uh, speculative bubbles. This time it's different. And almost always it turns out, no, it's not. And you end up with the same disastrous result. I don't know about Juan Guaido. He might be a genuine Democrat, but he's hardly the only member of the movement trying to overthrow Nicolas Maduro. Uh, one of the things that bothers me is uh, debates tend to polarize this way with hero worship on one side and uh, portraying the, the other side as, as completely villainous. Uh, one thing I wish is that people who are opposed to US intervention in Venezuela, as I am, would then not try to excuse what Maduro and his corrupt thugs have done to that country. I think that is downright shameful. Mm -hmm. But uh, in some ways, the talk about should we back Guaido or not misses the point, and it, it misses the point with the, the larger issue of what should drive American foreign policy and American security policy. Uh, to be blunt about it, even if the supporters of the Reagan doctrine and the, the subsequent generation backing so-called pro-democratic movements had been right about the people that they were backing, that's still the wrong basis for U.S. foreign policy. Even if Ahmad Shalabi truly had been the George Washington of Iraq, it was not in the best interests of the American people to launch a military intervention to invade and occupy Iraq. Um, I wanted to comment on one point that Jacob made, and I think he's a bit more cynical than I am about whether these people believe their rhetoric or not. And I think maybe I should have put a gullible superpower question mark, <laughs> because uh, that may have been a little more, uh, a little more accurate. But I, there's a split. I think some of the people really did believe their own rhetoric. Others did not. Uh, do I have difficulty um, believing that Dick Cheney really thought that Ahmed Shalabi was a genuine, honest, upright, pro-democratic figure? Yes. I would have a great deal of difficulty believing that. Do I have difficulty believing George W. Bush believed that Shalabi was a good guy? I have a lot less trouble believing that. Bush, in um, a session with some very friendly journalists, said that, look, people of Iraq really want freedom and democracy. Muslims and Methodists want the same thing. They want freedom for themselves and their children. They want a good life and so on. And you just almost wince at that kind of naivete. And it seems genuine. I think he really believed it. And there are others. Judith Miller, who passed on the Chalabi propaganda without question. I think she believed it. So, uh, you know, kind of a split vote. Uh, are there gullible members of the US foreign policy community who believe this, uh, this rhetoric? Yes. Were there cynics using it? the same kind of people who describe the Shah of Iran and Chiang Kai-shek as members of the free world? Yes, they were cynical types manipulating this. Go ahead, Jacob. Uh, there is something to, to Ted's point. It reminds me of the comment by uh, when Tony Blair was British 
prime minister and he was being uh, uh, assertively challenged by, by the press, I think in a joint uh, press conference with George W. Bush, he, he looked out and he said, it's worse than you think. I actually believe this. <laughs> um, my, my reservation, and I, 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 it's, it's more than a footnote, but it's not, it doesn't uh, uh, contradict Ted's thesis or his book, is that there is a penchant in American history, Richard Hofstadter once called it a national history of self-congratulation, that <laughs> if you go down this road of simply calling it gullible, you ascribe a kind of retroactive innocence to American actions. And I'm, I'm not one who believes that the American record is, uh, is, is simply one of... Uh, a black record of, of uh, supporting dictatorships and so forth. But it is, our motives are often more mixed than we're willing to acknowledge. That, that's just the point that I'm trying to make. Um, and as you point out, it is, you're always on shaky ground when you're trying to infer or ascribe motives that's whole, you know, we're taught not to do that. So that's a tricky thing. Uh, one other quick question, then I'll throw it open to the audience. Um, Ted, Jacob was... Uh, reasonably optimistic about where we are today and where we're going into the future. He says that this is a cyclical thing and we are in the down cycle now and that the American people are far less likely to fall victim uh, to these sorts of campaigns. Uh, where do you come down on that front? I certainly hope he's right. Um, there are certainly signs of war weariness, of greater skepticism, if not cynicism, on the part of the American people. On the other hand, you have a lot of powerful vested interests supporting the current uh, foreign policy, national security policy. Whether they believe in the explanations for that or the justifications or not, mm -hmm. they're, they're benefiting from it and they will continue to support it. I also know that the American people have a record of easily being panicked. And even if they're opposed to, let's say, staying in Afghanistan, what happens the next time a terrorist incident takes place on American soil? Will that suddenly switch 180 degrees? I'm worried about that. I, in some cases, I, I think we can be maybe one or two terrorist incidents away from a full-blown police state mm -hmm. domestically. And uh, the kind of... Uh, widespread support for aggressive action that we saw between 9-11 and the point the Iraq mission turned sour, where it was very uncomfortable to be a dissenter from yeah. that. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for your patience. We have time for some questions, a few ground rules. Uh, as always, please wait for the uh, microphone. That's for the benefit of those who are uh, listening or watching online. Um, Please identify your, uh, and yourself and your affiliation if you have one. Uh, and also uh, a reminder that the Jeopardy rule applies here at the Cato Institute. That means phrase your question in the form of a question. Uh, we'll stick to that. Yes, sir, right there in the front. Robert Charetta with International Investor. Um, I'm uh, about to enjoy the book, Mr. Carpenter. I haven't got to it yet. But my question is about presidential awareness. Every administration comes in, has its hands full of domestic issues, uh, challenges from the other side, lots to do. Uh, U.S. Special Operations Command recently admitted that they've got special ops now in 137 nations around the world. At what point does the intelligence community, special ops, military command have knowledge awareness and the abilities to do things that no administration can quite get their hands around. So much going on in so many places. And here's one other issue I'd just like to throw into this mix, economic interest involved. That could be persuasive in a number of ways to ask for a little commotion to be stirred up here and there. Thank you. I think one could argue that we already reached that point 
quite a long time ago, where we have so many missions, um, both being run by the Pentagon, being run by the intelligence agencies, that nobody quite has a handle on it. I was reminded of uh, the incident a couple years ago when four American Special Forces personnel were killed in Niger, Niger. And uh, there were several members of Congress who said, we had no idea that we had the number of forces in Niger that, that we have. And these were included people on the relevant committees that were supposed to be overseeing this. So if that's the case, you can imagine what the backbenchers in Congress knew next to nothing. You can imagine what the American people knew next to nothing. Um, It's also ironic, we tend to elect our presidents based on their domestic agendas. And yet when you think about it, the number one responsibility of the American president is supposed to be to run American foreign policy, diplomatic policy, and so on. That's the number one job. And yet we generally don't elect people who have expertise in that area. And I think that that shows up time and time again. Uh, The gap between Donald Trump's statements and I think in most cases his basic instincts and what actually turn out to be administration policy, that gap is usually huge. I I don't know how many times I've been told that we were about to leave Afghanistan and Syria. Nothing much is happening yet. Uh, I had a hand there right in the middle. Yes, ma'am, go ahead. Hi, Rachel Oswald, reporter with Congressional Quarterly. Um, Wanted to get your perspective on the wisdom of NATO admitting North Macedonia into the alliance, um, possibly uh, before the year is over, as well as um, other countries. Um, And I know that those are different issues, North Macedonia and Georgia and Ukraine. Thank you. Uh, NATO, by the way, is... Did you plant that question, Ted? I want to know if you planted that question. It is the subject of my next book, which will be coming out. (laughs) Because, you know, he doesn't turn them out quickly enough for those of us responsible for reading them. A colleague of mine uh, once put it that uh, in, in recent years, NATO is adding members in much the same way that a lot of people add Facebook friends, with the same degree of discrimination and uh, a need. Uh, and I am a strong believer that allies must benefit U.S. security interests, or those allies are not particularly useful to the United States. Adding many states and microstates to NATO has not enhanced the United States uh, security one iota. What it has done is create uh, useless security dependence and, in some cases, potential security snares, particularly if these small so-called allies, really security dependents, are on bad terms with uh, another major country. And I think this NATO expansion has been one of the most ill-considered, unwise policies the United States has ever pursued. A question there on the aisle. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Wait, please wait for the microphone. John Osler. I think this, uh, I'd like Mr. Carpenter to comment on the fact that the United States has moved away from acting alone. And that's what you've failed to stress in your book. The idea that the United States would somehow uh, rule the world, as it were, isn't working. But what is working, it seems to me, is that the United States has put 190 bases minimum around the world and we are now uh, attempting to work with governments who are uh, uh, attempting to uh, uh, do a job, be legitimate. Uh, Let me give you an example. Yemen today is uh, allowing uh, supposedly uh, the uh, aid to come into the country. 
because other countries, not just the United States, but other countries have embargoed and, and gone after the Saudis to uh, open up and free uh, uh, this uh, aid coming in. And uh, so, so is your is question, can I, if, if I, so is your, is your question that in, in the new environment, in the new international environment, it is harder for the United States to behave unilaterally in the way that it did in the period that Ted's no talking longer. about? Okay, no do you longer. agree with that, Ted, or not? To some extent, I think that's true, but uh, the more important question is, uh, are the policies being pursued wise or unwise, whether they're being pursued unilaterally or multilaterally? To me, that's a secondary issue. Do the policies make sense from the standpoint of the best interests of the American people. And that's been my main complaint. We've done some stupid things unilaterally. We have also done some stupid things multilaterally. And the fact that something is done multilaterally doesn't necessarily make it any better or worse. It depends on the circumstances. But I would look to the substance of the policy. To me, it is clear the U.S. is vastly overextended globally and that we have to be a lot more selective in terms of the policies we pursue, in terms of the commitments that we undertake. Do you have any thoughts on this, Jacob? Um, I think the question is what's, just to play devil's advocate here, what's overcommitted if you're, look at what Donald Trump is doing, jacking up defense spending the dollar is still the reserve currency of the world. The United States economy is humming along. So couldn't Trump just shrug his shoulders and say, what, what's the big deal? Yeah, we have all these bases, but we are making America great again. <laughs> We're going to be the dominant power in the world, and we need to have the ability to enforce, as Vice President Mike Pence says, the Monroe Doctrine in Central and Latin America. That's our territory. Uh, if we feel like it, we should be able to dispose of Iran in a day or two. Um, <laughs> what's, what's the hang-up? Uh, we have the money. We have the, the weapons. Why not? Yeah, Rome still looked very good in the 3rd <laughs> century AD uh, before the deluge. Uh, oftentimes, that, uh, it, the situation can look at least decent for a long time. Yes, our economy is humming along. Um, and we also have a $21 trillion U.S. national debt the interest charge of which is now a major budget obligation every single year and likely to get worse, much worse. Um, even if we can get away with that, conceivably for several years or maybe a couple of decades more, the ultimate outcome is, I think, fairly certain, and it's not a happy one. The one good thing about being a superpower is you can get away with making blunders and being very wasteful for a very, very long time. But a very long time is not forever. Not forever. It does catch up with you sooner or later. And I think we're getting fairly close to the point of it catching up to us. I'm reminded of the, I think it's Ernest Hemingway who said, how did you go bankrupt? Slowly and then very quickly, something like that. Um, uh, I had a hand up over here, but then I think he left. So, uh, Evan, uh, uh, right there. John, if you can hear me, I didn't mean for you to leave the auditorium. <laughs> My name is Evan Sankey uh, from Johns Hopkins SICE. Um, it occurs to me that sometimes it is different. <laughs> and you said it's never, you know, it's always, people say this time is different, but it never is. But sometimes it is. And this has been a learning experience for the United States. And I've, I've talked to people who were in positions of power in, in the George W. Bush administration. And what they say is, well, look, we did it in Germany. <laughs> we did it in Japan. We supported the democ democratization of South Korea and the people power movement in the Philippines. And you, know, you could argue the extent to which America played a decisive role, but there are triumphs 
that the interveners can point to. And I, I wonder if you comment on that. Like, how, how, can you, how do you overcome <clears throat> that argument? Good question. Yeah, how do you overcome that? Yeah, first of all, um, I usually deal or have to deal with the Germany and Japan examples in the context of nation building because a lot the advocates of U.S. intervention will point to that well. That worked beautifully. We restored democracy there. There are nice, stable democratic systems now. And I always point out, yeah, but there were definite exceptions there. Those were real nations. We didn't have to build nations. We, if anything, were rebuilding a nation in both cases. Secondly, support for democracy in uh, places like South Korea and the Philippines. Well, yeah. Eventually. After several decades <laughs> of supporting <clears throat> repressive dictators. And Schultz, actually very influential in both cases. And I'll give him tremendous credit for that. He saw that was a policy that had really run its course and that we had better switch gears right away or we were going to have a disastrous result. So good credit to him on that, but it was a very belated change in policy. Uh, I'm not going to say, well, it's never different, but when you see policy patterns that resemble previous disastrous policies with very, very few differences. I think it's a mistake to argue this time it's different. And, you know, again, one would have thought we would have learned from the Iraq experience <laughs> that it's probably a bad idea to overthrow a secular dictatorial regime and because the, the aftermath is likely to be worse, not better. And yet we did the same thing in Libya we're doing the same thing in Syria. At what point do you say to the advocates of that kind of policy, you better stop saying this time it's different when again and again and again and again, it turns out to be the same or very similar to the previous disastrous results. The burden of proof is on you to demonstrate that this time it's different. Jacob? I think it, it's a good question. I think one of the things that was certainly different in Germany is that you had a functioning bureaucracy and liberal traditions, however attenuated, that you could tap into. So it had been a fairly modern society. It had a parliament uh, during World War I and, and during the Weimar era. Uh, Japan, you had the Meiji era of modernization. It took decades for <laughs> Japan to become a full democracy, and we can start quarreling about what is democracy, too. It, it clearly worked in Germany, Japan, and South Korea, though, and South Korea took a long time, too. I think then you get to the question of how much, how much cost are you willing to pay? In South Korea, we're willing to stick it out. Uh, Germany and Japan were leveled, um, and then we, we did stick it out in both countries at, at not an enormous cost. Um, the question would be, in Afghanistan, we're not willing to pay the cost. Uh, and maybe it's, maybe it's hopeless, maybe it's not, but we're, we're not willing to pay that cost. That's a political judgment, the same way Vietnam was. People were just, it's over, we're done. Um, finally, your question prompts me to think about the good old United States and the condition of its democracy. The one thing we have not discussed here today is that American democracy is clearly eroding. And I am hard pressed to see how we can plausibly <laughs> uh, be talking about exporting democracy and serving as a model at this right. time point. Well, well said. Yes, sir, on the aisle there. And then I'm going to get some uh, folks here on this side. I'm going to, okay, very good. Yes, sir. Yeah, hi. <clears throat> Ken Meyercord, retired gadfly. Um, the attempted usurpation of the presidency of Venezuela by Mr. Guaido is so grotesquely outside the rule of law, uh, which we love to boast our adherence to. Uh, how did we manage to get 50-odd countries to follow our lead in that regard? <laughs> it's a good question. I suspect you don't really know the answer to that question, Ted, because you probably haven't been read into that uh, assembling of a 
coalition of the willing by the Trump administration. I have seen on uh, a lot of other issues, though, that when the U.S. government says this is something we really want and we will be very unhappy if you don't support us in this, uh, the level of implied threat is quite high that there are lots of things you're going to want, uh, new trade agreements, what have you, and that we will not look uh, kindly on those desires if you don't support us on issue X. And for a lot of these uh, other countries, it's not that big a deal which side they recognize in Venezuela. So if you get the U.S. Uh, at least gently squeezing your arm, if not <laughs> pulling it all the way behind you, uh, that's a reasonably easy concession to make. Just say, fine, we'll go along. We'll recognize this government. Doesn't matter to us much one way or the other. Right. Uh, over here, sir. <clears throat> no, right here on the aisle. Oh, I'm sorry. Is there another hand? Oh, go ahead. Yep, go ahead. Right here, right there, right there. My name is Tamar Chatterjee, Safe Foundation. Um, you know, you have emphasized that Chalabi was uh, hustling U.S. officials. Uh, if I know the U.S. CIA and its tentacles and, and uh, American information, um, I think the CIA should have had better information. And therefore, I think the American officials and the U.S. president were the super hustler, not Chalabi <laughs> may be a small hustler, but <laughs> the United States official, including the U.S. president, was a super hustler. Given that, and also, I, I think Mr. Heilbrunn just raised that point, uh, which was kind of a touch and go, is looking at, I've lived in the United States from 1970 to today, U.S. itself doesn't believe in a real democracy which could be linked to the Constitution as all men are created equal. It has never believed it, and it does not believe it even now during Bush administration and, uh, and uh, Obama administration, both. The way they have kidnapped people from other countries, tortured them, brutalized them, and they said they're not subject to American uh, jurisprudence or American so what you're saying, human sir. rights. So, so what you're saying is when we retitle the book, you think it should be at least question mark, if not cynical, uh, superpower. Uh, Maybe I should have crowdsourced this title. Yeah. Ted, Ted it has been known to crowdsource titles, and sometimes it can work out pretty well. So uh, on the aisle here. Yes, sir. Go ahead. You've probably given us a lot of thought. Oh, Joe Coyle from the Business Communications Group. You've probably given this a lot of thought, but what will we do if China continues to be aggressive in the East, in the Far East? Do you think the United States should do nothing, or what, well, I'm, I'm not being cynical, but what would what will we do in such case? That's one of the toughest questions for U.S. foreign policy, and one of the things that drives me nuts is uh, the current focus on Russia as the great threat to the United States. I'm looking, Russia is you know, certainly a credible regional power with very limited extra-regional interests or uh, clout. And meanwhile, in, the, in East Asia, you have a very serious rising possible peer competitor, peer challenger in China. Nonetheless, I think the effort to try to preserve U.S. military primacy in East Asia is, is a losing proposition over the long term. What the U.S. should be doing, I think the best option of uh, a set of less than perfect options is to try to orchestrate a new balance of power in East Asia, but not have the United States as the point man to deal with every crisis in East Asia, nor the point man in trying to apply a crude version of the containment policy that worked against the Soviet Union and apply that against China. For one thing, China has economic connections with the rest of the world that the Soviet Union never had, never came close to having. So that policy is just not likely to work. We have to think this through very carefully, but to me, the focus on Russia is about as misplaced as it can be. 
we ought to be looking elsewhere. Jacob? I'll just say quickly, there I would slightly differ in emphasis from Ted. Again, I think Russia is a threat and has weaponized its weakness against the United States and, and other countries. Um, it's, it's Putin is playing his hand extremely well. On China, I may be, I'm not in the camp that believes that we are doomed to conflict. <laughs> and to me, it seems like there's been a lurch in Washington to create a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that China, in fact, may be, may be the weak country with its internal problems and that it is not foreordained that it is going to either surpass the United States or come into direct conflict with it. Though for the Cold War industry in Washington, there, there seems to be the, the hope that China will be the Soviet Union redux. Yeah, I, I would agree that uh, the clash between the United States and China is not foreordained. And uh, nonetheless, I would argue China is a more credible pure competitor to the United States than a declining Russia is. Yes, Putin has played his hand very, very well. But if all you have is a pair of nines, you can only do so much <laughs> in a poker hand. China, I think, has a better hand right now. The US has the best hand of all, but we keep throwing away our best cards and drawing deuces. Be tough to top that. All right, uh, uh, right here. Uh, let, we'll make this our last question. Right there, sir. Go ahead. Thanks, uh, Jacob Puckett. I'm a student. To what extent does your opposition to meddling in foreign affairs extend to the economic realm? Whether it's sanctions, embargoes, trade agreements. Good question. Generally speaking, I'm opposed to that strategy. That's not to say it's never appropriate, but the U.S. uses it in a much too promiscuous manner. And I think more often than not, it is counterproductive. You see, many of the countries that we have designated as, as our enemies um, would actually like to have decent de diplomatic relations with the United States, decent economic connections to the United States. We're the ones constantly pushing uh, the envelope on this. And I think that a more restrained strategy is, is better for us. And let's not make problems in weak and troubled countries even worse. I don't want to give the Maduros of the world the excuse, well, if it hadn't been for the sanctions imposed by the evil United States, we would have had the socialist paradise. You know, it's baloney. <laughs> he knows it's baloney. But it gives that allegation a degree of credibility that it shouldn't have and would not have otherwise. Very good. All right, well, I want to thank you again for uh, attending today. We're going to have, uh, we'll retire to the George M. Yeager Conference Center for lunch. Uh, our conference staff will show you the way. Um, there are restrooms up there on the second floor. Just look for the yellow wall. And I do hope you'll pick up a copy of Ted's book. I, I suspect he might even be happy to sign it for you uh, if you uh, if you avail yourself of that. Thank you all very much for coming today. Thank you.